So I appreciate you guys giving us your time and attention. I don't take that lightly. I don't want to waste that time. Uh, the last time I was here, I think was about three or four years ago. So I don't know if I get to talk to you for the next three or four years or so. So I don't want to talk about trivial things. I want to talk about important things. So please take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 11. I have a funeral to do on Saturday, so John chapter 11 is uh, heavy on my mind. We're going to look this morning in the middle of the story at verses 17 through 27. John 11, 17 through 27. As Carson mentioned, I am a reader. I engage with my people sometimes in sermons. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see how that goes here. I don't know what you guys do. Um, I love to read. Every writer wants that perfect opening line for their book. Uh, Again, all I do outside of my family, I have five girls. All five of them are girls. They keep asking me, oh, why didn't you bring your family? Because I have five girls, and it's hard to get out of the house. Um, So I left them. I left them at home. Um, But all I do outside of church and my family is I love to run and I love to read. And sometimes I like to quiz my people on famous opening lines of books, right? Really good, opening, engaging lines. This one ran through my head as I worked on this text. It's easy. You should know this. What book begins with this line? Marley was dead to begin with. I heard it. Who? Christmas Carol. Thank you. Good. If you have not read Charles Dickens' Read them. If you have not read The Christmas Carol, read it. If you have not seen the Muppets version, watch it. Um, So it begins, Marley was dead to begin with. Our story this morning begins, Lazarus was dead to begin with. This is where we're picking up the story in John chapter 11. Death is our context. Death is the conflict. Every good story has conflict. Death is the conflict of this story. And death is so present and real and overpowering that it's almost as if death is a character itself in this story and in our story. We're dealing with death right now in our church. Maybe you guys have been dealing with some death lately or there will be death uh, to come. Death could sometimes feel like the character, the main player, the main plot and purpose, unless, unless there is life, of course. But Lazarus was dead to begin with. And so I do, I want to talk with you this morning about death. This is a chapter about death. But the good news, as we're going to see, is that being a chapter that is ultimately about Christ, as are all chapters of the scriptures, this chapter that is about death is ultimately then a chapter that is about life. But as we see, the gospel movement, the way to the life is through the death. That's how it was for Christ. That's how it will be for all who follow him. That's how it will be for us as we work through this text. We must deal with death. Though, for honest, we try not to deal with it these days. We try to ignore it. We try not to talk about it. We kind of try to hide it away and ignore it, ultimately, because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do about it. Some of you are probably thinking, why is the guest speaker coming to talk about death uh, here? We just don't like thinking about death. Do you think about it? And how do you think about it? Again, probably differently than Christians often did in the past. We just sang a song, it is not death to die. That's kind of weird. That's a weird thing to say. I love Charles Spurgeon. Here are just a couple Spurgeon quotes concerning death. Listen to these. To be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. That's what we're trying to do here. You can't really live If you don't really understand death and are prepared for that, 
Listen to this. The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one that is nearest heaven. Wow. Yeah, do, we, do we agree with that? Uh, this, one's, this one's crazy. The only people for whom I have felt any envy have been dying members of this very church. That's, that's, that's different. It is not lost to die. It is lasting perpetual gain. It sounds a bit like Paul, doesn't it? Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. 23, my desire is to depart. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body. But would we? Honestly, would we rather be away from the body? Revelation 14.3 says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And the Bible speaks about death differently than we tend to today. Paul talks about desired death. John writes about blessed death. Again, it's a little bit strange. Because we are talking about death here. The king of terrors. The great unknown. Inevitably coming for all of us. Ending all of us. Hanging over everything. I read a book recently, The Violet Hour, which is about the deaths of various famous writers. It was kind of morbid. They weren't... Christians, and the author wonders at the beginning why she's interested in this, and she says, secretly, of course, reading through these deaths, what one wants to learn is how to avoid dying altogether. Again, a hopeless endeavor, as all of her subjects die, as all of us will die, and so she eventually writes at the end of the book, I don't believe that you can learn how to die or gain wisdom or prepare. I gave her 300 pages. And that was the conclusion. That's what she gave me. Nothing. Not very encouraging. But I believe that you can learn how to die. I believe that you can gain wisdom and that you must prepare. And I believe that you can avoid dying altogether. Because that's exactly what Christ himself tells us in our text today. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. And that's a wild claim. That's what must be done about death. That's what has been done about death. This should be obvious, but let's make it clear. The only solution to death is life. We're obsessed with health and safety and lengthening life. I love fitness and running. I ran a race in Central Park this morning at 7 o'clock and then showered and ran over here. I love all of these things. We love vaccines and we love organic food and all that. Uh, but ultimately, again, all we're really doing is delaying death. Only life can solve the problem of death. Again, do you feel that problem? You are alive. You desperately want to stay alive. That desire, though, will inevitably be frustrated. What can be done? How can life be found when death comes for every single one of us? John chapter 11. Jesus. It's beautifully simple. J.C. Ryle says that there's a grand simplicity about this passage which is almost spoiled by any human exposition. <laughs> almost. I hope to not spoil this text. But he's right. This is beautifully simple. I tried to come up with some novel, brilliant approach to it. We don't need that. What we need this morning, whether we know it or not, is Christ. We need to see what Christ says so clearly in this text. We need life. Jesus has just said in chapter 10, verse 11, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And again, I, I really want that. All right, don't you really want that? 
I am tired of being grumpy and moody and impatient and restless, conflicted, offended, frustrated, disappointed. I want a solution to my death that is coming then, and I want to experience the fruits of that solution, abundant eternal life now. Can that happen? Well, let's consider our text. Let's consider Christ our life. Simple outline as we progress through this life and death story. Jesus is the main idea. He is where we must focus. So we're going to begin with this number five of seven I am statements of identity and revelation. Point number one, quite simply, I am. That's the main point. What is the only right response to I am? Point number two, Martha is going to say, I believe. What is the result of this belief in Christ? Point number three, I live. So if you're a note taker, that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through our text. I am, I believe, I live. Christ is the only solution to your life and death problem. You only get him through faith. But when you get him, abundant life. So Christ, faith, life. That's all we're going to do today. John 11, let me read the text for you. Uh, Picking up in the middle, Lazarus has been sick. Jesus has waited. Lazarus has died now. Jesus has come. So let me read John 11, verses 17 through 27. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. If you would pause with me, uh, let's, let's pray. Let's go to this Lord and ask uh, for his help uh, in this time. Now pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, We see very clearly here that you are the God of all power. Father, you are the God who is greater than death itself. Um, Father, we are weak. Uh, We are finite. Um, Father, I am entirely unable to accomplish anything of eternal value in this time apart from you. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I ask and pray that you would, by your Spirit, work through your Word. I pray that you would show us Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us a great desire and affection for the Christ who is life itself. Father, we all of us are uh, struggling to look for life in various other places. Uh, Show us Christ so clearly today that we are compelled to believe that it is truly and fully and only found in him. Father, please help the preaching of the word. Um, Please set aside any of my desires to impress or entertain or to seek my own glory. Father, I pray that your glory would be the goal. Father, please help the hearing of your word. Please show us Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Point number one, I am. And point number one is quite simply the identity of Christ. Christ makes big claims about himself. 
Let's first set the context for those claims. In verse 17, there has been a scene change. The characters stay the same, or, well, kind of. One of them has now moved from sick to dead, and that's the point of verse 17. Look at 17. Again, Jesus was away. Mary and Martha have said, come. Jesus stays away purposefully. Lazarus is sick. Jesus lingers. Lazarus dies. Now, Jesus comes. But verse 17 highlights that Lazarus has already been dead for days. Why that detail? Uh, Many commentators uh, mentioned there was a Jewish superstition at the time that the soul kind of like lingers around, hovers over the body for three days. So Jesus has to wait four days to make sure that people don't think the soul was just there and he didn't really do anything that impressive. Uh, I, I don't think that's really the case. I don't think that's why the four days are mentioned. If you look down in verse 39, Martha will argue that since it's been four days, there will be an odor. The body will have already begun to deteriorate and decay. You now know the first line of A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. The second line is, there is no doubt whatever about that. That's the point of the four days. Lazarus was dead. There's no doubt whatever about that. And whereas the deadness of Marley is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his ghost, he's still very much dead. He's in chains, tortured for eternity. The deadness of Lazarus is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his life. Capital L, Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes, life comes, the great I am arrives. In verse 19, it's mentioned that many of the Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort and console them. That probably means that they were a family of some means or significance. We don't know for sure, but the mourning process back then was big and elaborate and loud. The Jews rightly recognized the tragedy that is death, the unnaturalness of death. And that is, in and of itself, a strong argument against the naturalistic worldview that increasingly pervades our culture. If you're here and you're not a believer, welcome. You have found a great uh, church. Uh, Come and hear the gospel, the good news. Uh, But I've never understood uh, how uncomfortable we are with death from that worldview. It should be the most natural thing in the world to us. All are born, all die. Nature is just shot through with death. Nature drives death. It's everywhere. It's natural, right? And yet, why do we so rage against it? Why does it so unsettle and unnerve us? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if Scripture is true, and Ecclesiastes 3.11, in some way God has put eternity into our hearts, if we are made in the very image of God, made like God Himself, who is the God of life, thus we are then made for life, We all then intrinsically and inherently long for that life. That makes sense of the natural awareness that we all have of the horror and the unnaturalness that is death. And so we rightly mourn death, the unwelcome intruder, the unnatural enemy of God's good creation. And so these people are rightly mourning, but it's an end to that mourning that Christ now comes. So look at verse 20. Martha hears that Christ has come, and so Martha comes to Christ. Great, simple application side note there. Martha's first move is the right move. She goes to Jesus. She meets Jesus. I don't know about you, but I am tempted in my pain, my suffering, my doubt to do the opposite. 
I'm, I'm tempted to hide and to run. Uh, she's hurting. She's confused. He hasn't come, and yet she knows where to turn. She knows where to look in the face of death. So go to Jesus with your fears and your disappointments and your needs. And look at her words to Christ in verse 21. Just feel the heartache. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And we're going to focus more on her words in point number two. I want to focus first on Christ's words. Look at how he responds uh, to her pain there. Verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And what? Put yourself in her shoes. What a word that is. What a promise in the face of death. Remember, life is the only solution to death. Lazarus was dead. Jesus says, he will rise again. He will live again. Martha's not quite tracking yet. How could she be tracking? We're still not really tracking. Look at verse 24. Well, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, there was a great debate and divide back then between kind of two of the main religious groups at the time. You maybe have heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees denied that there was any resurrection of the dead at all. The Pharisees believed that there was a future resurrection of the dead. So Martha's demonstrating that she, just, she kind of uh, sides with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap. Uh, they were seeking at least to be the more biblical uh, of the two groups uh, at least, but but look at verse 25. Look at what Christ does. Look at what he claims. He enters into this ages-old argument, and he just blows the whole thing up. And we're going to talk in a moment about how perfectly Christ comforts Martha. But notice how that comfort lovingly includes correcting Martha. Notice that the comfort includes teaching Martha. Look at 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. If you hear one thing this morning, hear that verse. Know that verse. This is our point. Christ says, I am. This is one of the high marks of this whole book that is full of high marks. Uh, that's one of the clearest and most comforting revelations of the person of Christ. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John at all, John writes masterfully. He structures his book around seven signs. There's not all these miracles that Christ is going around doing all these things. There's seven signs. John never calls them miracles. They're always signs. And this is actually the seventh and climactic sign, the raising of life, preparing us for the raising of Christ himself. So there's these seven signs that structure the book, and there's these seven I am statements that structure the book, and that reveal to us a little bit more about who this Christ is. This is statement number five of seven. And Jesus insists on doing this. Jesus will not allow you to like him. He will not allow you to be mildly interested in him. He will not allow you to consider him as wise teacher, prophet, healer, kind of nice guy to have around. No, he takes one of the most important texts in the Hebrew scriptures. He is taking Hebrews 3.14, the self-revelation of the creator God of all that exists, where God says to Moses, I am who I am, say to the people, I am, Yahweh has sent me to you. Jesus takes that and says, I am that. I am he. I am Yahweh. Oh, by the way, that was me in the burning bush. Remember John 1 at the beginning, says, no one has ever seen God. 
When you see God in the Old Testament, you're generally seeing Christ. You're seeing the Son of God. That's Christ in the burning bush. Jesus says that, God, that's me. Again, biggest, boldest possible claim. And so it's either true or it's not. He either is that or he isn't. If he is that, you must and better deal with him. And you should deal with him now. If he's not, you should leave right now. And he's worse than worthless. Who do you say that Jesus is? He says that he is I am. And he's relentlessly insistent about this. He said it back in 858. Before Abraham was, I am, period. No other information, just I am. But there's these seven other claims that we're looking at where he says, I am, and then he adds something to it, a predicate, if you're a grammar person. He adds a predicate that explains a little bit more about who he is. There's seven of them. Listen to these. Note what they're all about. Before I tell you, try to come up with what you think all seven of these claims are about. I'm going to move quickly just through them because we don't have much time. Um, So you can jot them down and look at them later. Here's the seven I am claims from the Gospel of John. 635 is the first one. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 812, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 107, Jesus says, I am the door. 1011, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 1125, our text, I am the resurrection and the life. 146, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15.1, I am the vine. You see the one thing that connects all seven of those together? Did you catch it? Any idea what it is? Life. Every single one of those claims is about life. Bread is life. Light is life. The door is the way to life. The good shepherd lays down his life for our life. Resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, the life. The vine is life. Every one of these claims is a claim to be life. This is the thing that Christ is communicating. This is the thing that Christ has come to bring. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so here he says, I am life. The fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is God. And since God is life, the fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is life. That he is the very center the very sum of Christianity. I am. And so the question that follows then logically is, well, next is, well, okay, who are you? If that's who he is, what does that have to do with you? And who are you? How do you respond to this claim of Christ? For the Bible claims that that is what determines who you are. We're all, detri- we're all trying to establish our identity. I identify myself through my daughters. I have five daughters. I think that's cool. Um, I think that makes me better than people because boys, eh, girls are great. Um, So I have five girls. I'm identifying myself. I love to read. What am I trying to do? Identify myself in a certain way so that you'll like me. I like to run. I'm identifying myself in a certain way to kind of put off some sort of good. We're all trying to identify ourselves. How do you try and identify yourself? The scripture says Christ is what determines who you are, what you do with him. Christ is what determines life or death. Point number two, there are only two responses to such a claim of Christ. Uh, The first is obviously rejection. 
Jesus has just said in the last chapter to the Jews, uh, Jews used in John as the religious authorities. It's not the people in general, but it's the religious authorities. Uh, 1026, Jesus says to them, you do not believe. That's response number one. And just to be clear, not choosing one way or another, or even just like apathy, or disinterest, or willful ignorance, is the same as outright rejection. You, you cannot be confronted with such a claim, with the claim to be the God of life, with Christ to be the God of life, come to graciously give to you life and respond to that, to respond to him, the God of all beauty, glory, and grace with, eh, I'm going to go watch Netflix. That's rejection. That's response number one. Response number two is belief. Verse 27, look at Martha's, what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe. But back up first, because she's not quite fully there at the beginning of our passage. So go back to verse 21. Let's consider her words again. Some people try to read Martha's opening words to Jesus as implicit rebuke. Where were you, Jesus? We don't get tone, so I guess you could make that case. I, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's likely just the legitimate, honest cry of grief and sadness. Where were you? He's, he's dead. Where were you? I don't think there's anything wrong with her bringing that to the Lord. You should bring that to the Lord. We see that in the Psalms over and over again. But don't miss that there is some degree of unbelief there revealed in some of her assumptions. First, notice that she says, if you had been there. But why would Jesus have had to have been there? In the end of John chapter 4, a man comes to Jesus and asks him to come and heal his son in another town who is at the point of death. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. So Jesus, a second sign, he heals while he is away. Why could he have not done the same thing for Lazarus? He could have. Jesus is not constrained by space, which also demonstrates another assumption of Martha's that had Jesus been there, that he would have healed Lazarus. But he could have healed Lazarus from a distance, and he did not. So why assume that he would have if he was there? Again, I'm not pointing this out to be critical. That's not my point. My point is simply that there are some things she doesn't quite get yet, but she gets that her only hope is Christ. She gets that Christ loves Lazarus. She gets to seek that love. Uh, she gets that, that love seeks the good of the loved. And so Christ has come uh, and he's going to demonstrate that love in some way. And in verse 22, she even seems to imply that she has some sort of glimmer of hope. I don't know exactly how to read verse 22. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And that's a profound statement. I don't think she yet has the entirety of identity of Christ sorted out, but God gives to no one whatever they ask from him. How much of a disaster would my life? I would be married to like 20 women if God gave me whatever I asked. Like I, through my whole life, I was like, God, I want to marry this woman and this woman and this woman and this woman. God said, no, 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 right? Thank God that he doesn't answer all of our stupid, sinful, selfish prayers. God gives no one whatever they ask from him except for the Son of God, of course. This is an implicit claim to deity. She's close. There's some sort of faith, little or imperfect as it may be. Now, I want, to do, I, want to, I want to pause for a second and put a pin in Martha for a moment, and I want to look back at a part of the text that we didn't read because I think this is helpful. We're talking about faith, I believe. Belief and faith are the same thing in the Bible, right? You know that, right? There's no difference. Belief, faith, same thing. But look back. We didn't read this. Look up at verses 14 and 15. I think this is really interesting. 
Jesus has said Lazarus has fallen asleep in verse 11. Again, what a comfort. That's why we can sing, it is not death to die. Uh, What a comfort to hear from our Lord. Lazarus is asleep. That death in Christ is nothing more than sleep. No more harmful than sleep. But look at 14. Just like Martha's not quite getting it, his disciples aren't quite getting it. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, there's a few wild things going on in there. Jesus, in effect, says, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad. <laughs> that's kind of, well, thanks, Jesus. Uh, there's more to that. To that, of course, there's, there's a point, there's a purpose, there's always purpose in Christ. Notice what he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? Purpose statement, so that you may believe. That's our second point. I believe. Jesus is working on the disciples' faith, just like Martha. Jesus waited for a number of reasons, one of which was for the good of the disciples and the faith of his disciples. Faith is just, it's trust. Faith is trustful belief. It is a knowledge of Christ, assent to the truth of that knowledge of Christ, and then you're placing yourself and your trust in Christ. Right? Faith is the whole-souled entrusting of self into his gracious hands. That's the whole point of this book. That's why John writes this book. Believe him, trust him, give yourself to him. Back in verse 4, Jesus has said that this illness is for the glory of God. Again, such statements make us uncomfortable. But Jesus says this illness is for God's glory. The glory of God is the key clue to understanding this story. It's fundamental to the story, and it's fundamental to your story. Nothing ultimately makes sense without an understanding of this. God's purpose is God's glory always. God's purpose is God's glory always and in everything. And in the context of our second point, faith glorifies God. Why does faith glorify God? Well, because it trusts Him. And it trusts Him even in the face of illness, even in the face of death. Faith proclaims to the world that we value God more than life, that we trust God in the face of death, and when we do that by His grace, it glorifies Him. It draws attention and honor to him. Oh, look at how good he is. Faith manifests and makes known how good and great God must be for his people to so cling to him and trust him and love him. Even when things are falling apart, faith glorifies God. And faith is for our good. And so Jesus is here working to grow and expand the faith of his disciples. In John, believing is living. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would believing something uh, result in living? Well, it's because believing is the thing that connects us to the God of life. And that means that for us, faith is our highest good. Because it is the means through which we are connected to Him, the means through which we are in communion with Him, He who is our highest good. Thus, whatever can be done, whatever He can do to strengthen that faith that connects us to Him, It's ultimately good. That's why you need a healthy understanding of the the providence of God. That's why trusting that God is sovereign and in control, even in all of our troubles, 
is so important. He's working always to demonstrate his goodness to us and to increase our faith in him. And what if we actually believed? Romans 8, 28, it gets thrown around as a cliche and people say, oh, don't throw it around, it's a cliche anymore. No, but what if we actually believed that God is working all things for your good? What if we actually believed that? And that in whatever the thing is, he's always doing that. If we actually believed that, I think we kind of dismiss it and say, don't throw it around because we don't really believe it. But if we actually believed it, we'd, we'd trust him. We'd have greater, stronger faith. Hey, I know this thing is hard and this thing hurts and I don't understand what's going on here, but I know that you're good. And you've demonstrated that very, very clearly. So I'm going to trust you even when this doesn't seem to align with, with this. Or we'd have greater faith. Is Thomas, look at verse 16. Is Thomas demonstrating that strong, strong great faith in verse 16? He says, let us go that we may die with him. Again, I don't know. Again, we don't know tone. So some commentators say, oh, look at how big and bold Thomas's faith is. But again, we, we, the only other thing we really know about Thomas is from chapter 20. And we know, he, you know he's doubting Thomas, poor Thomas. Um, and so in light of that, I'm actually inclined to think that this may not be faith, this may be more of a sarcastic, resigned, well, whatever, let's go, let's go and die, I guess. Whatever. He's going to go out and die. Might as well go with him kind of thing. I think, actually, Thomas' statement might not be an evidence of faith. It might actually be evidence of, of lack of faith, or at least a very little faith. Again, I don't know for sure either way, uh, but what if it is that one? What if it's actually evidence of little faith? Well, that's just further evidence of how good our good shepherd is. Because I don't know about you, but I am often not very much different than Thomas. I'm often kind of, well, it is what it is. Oh, well, whatever, grin and bear it. Um, things are bad. Um, I think that's what Thomas is doing here. And if that's what he's doing, how amazing is it then that Christ is still working for his good, is still working to grow and strengthen his faith, a faith that will eventually, after the compassionate and patient pursuit of Christ, cry out at the end of the book, oh, my Lord and my God. Oh, you of little faith, Christ says uh, to him and to many of us. But Christ still loves him. And Christ still reveals himself to him patiently again and again and again. Christ still wants to grow our little faith so that we can more and more see him and love him and enjoy him. He's after their faith because that's their highest good. And that's what he's doing for Martha as well. I go back to her. She gets some things wrong, but look at how he loves Martha. Look at how he comforts Martha. And I know that I am often a miserable comforter. I'm not a very good comforter. It's not my uh, strong suit. Um, Christ is not a miserable comforter. God is not a miserable comforter. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls God the God of all comfort. But our concept of comfort is, is often so constrained. I want you to see how Christ comforts. Yes, weep with those who weep. Of course, Christ is about to weep with those who weep. That's what's coming in the next passage if you were to, to keep reading. But that's not the entirety of comfort. Christ offers comprehensive comfort. And where does it begin? Notice what Christ does. Where is true comfort found? What does he do? He draws her attention to himself. Lazarus is dead. Martha is mourning. And Jesus says, I am. She's mourning. And he's teaching. She's mourning, and he gives her truth. 
the truth, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Martha says, he, Lazarus, in verse 24, and look at what Jesus does. He redirects her attention and says, me, I am, in verse 25, because he is where we find comfort. I know that much of my struggle as a comforter comes often from not knowing what to say, not having a real solution to the problem, right? It's a pride thing. I want to fix people's problems when I can't. I'm like, oh, oh no, what do I do? But here's the beauty in the comfort that Christ offers. He knows the solution, and he is the solution. <laughs> he, he has the power himself uh, to be the solution to all of your problems, I have to remember, as a seeking to grow as a better comforter, that the kindest comfort that I can offer is to direct the sufferer to Christ, who is the perfect comforter. The best solution that I can offer is Christ as solution. And then we all of us have to strive to believe that comfort is actually only found in Him. There's this crazy John Owen quote that I use a lot to love because it's so provocative and weird. And he says, this is the universal remedy and cure. This is the only balm and comfort for all our diseases. Whatever this thing is, it sounds pretty good. Universal remedy and cure, comfort, the only one for all our diseases. What could that be, John Owen? And he argues that it is a sight of the glory of Christ. And that's what this whole text is about. This text that is about belief. John is often called the gospel of belief. Jesus is after her and our ultimate eternal comfort. And Jesus knows that it's found only as we find him. And so even in the midst of mourning and great suffering, he teaches her. He reveals himself to her. He draws his attention to her and says, look at me, look at me, come to me. And so you need to know where you tend to look for comfort. How do you tend to self-medicate? We all tend to self-medicate in various ways. What is yours? Food? Is yours exercise? Is yours Netflix distraction? How do you tend to self-medicate? Where do you naturally go for comfort? Seek to find rest and belief. Where do you really turn when things are bad and you are sad and sometimes mad? What we most need is a clear view of Christ and a constant view of Christ. We need to learn, like Martha, to make that first move, that, that turn towards him. And that happens, that sight, that view of Christ, happens by faith through the word of Christ. This is why I preach expositionally. This is why I preach long sermons. I got an email from Grace that told me I had 35 minutes. Uh, forgive me for ignoring that suggestion. I apologize. Um, th- th- this, but this is why doctrine and theology matters. Because it's about him. This, this thing, it's, 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 we're like, I'll read your Bible, read your Bible. Why? This is the means through which he reveals himself to us. We understand, he's in John 1.1. 1, 1. He, he's the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we're like, that's weird. Why is he the word? What are words? Words are how we reveal ourselves to one another. Words are how we relate ourselves to one another. Words relate and reveal. Christ, as the Word of God, is the one who reveals God to us and the one who relates God to us. And he gives us here this word, living and active, that communicates God to us and through which we commune um, with God. The Word is what you need because it's about Him. And the God of this Word, the Christ of this text, is big and He's good. He is the God of all glory and grace. And He is what you need. 
And that includes knowing Him, which includes knowing about Him, which then by the power of the Holy Spirit results in loving Him. And I think it's hugely significant here that Christ teaches about Himself to Martha in the midst of her mourning and her pain. And are you comforted in the midst of your mourning and your pain? You're showing you whatever it is that, that's going on. I don't want to minimize any of those things and the difficulties of, the, of those things. Where do you turn, though? Where do you seek comfort in those things that do and will come? Again, another J.C. Ryle, again, an old English guy that I really like, he writes on this text, many complain of want of real comfort in their religion. Want is just lack. I think we all, we don't find a lot of actual comfort in our, our faith. They do not feel the inward peace which they desire. Let them know that vague and indefinite views of Christ are too often the cause of all our perplexities. They must try to see more clearly the great object on which their faith rests. They must grasp more firmly his love and power towards them that believe and his riches that he has laid up for them even now in this world. True comfort is found only in knowing him. And not just knowing about him, but knowing him intimately and deeply. I want to know him intimately and deeply because again, just from this text, look at who he is. Look at how good he is. He is life. The first question of the wonderful Heidelberg Catechism, I commend it to you if you've never read it. But the very first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Only comfort that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And is that your only comfort? Is Christ your only comfort? Do you believe this? Look at Martha's response to this comforting revelation of Christ. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. And what a confession. There's not a hint of hesitation. This may be the greatest confession in the whole book. What conviction. And in the face of such circumstances, her brother is dead. She believes. Look at the content of what she believes. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. There's knowledge. There's, there's content of her, her, her belief. She gets it now. Jesus has graciously revealed himself to her. She sees and she knows and she believes. And the result, she lives. Point number three. I'll be short. Point number three, I live. And we know that she lives because of the rest of what Jesus claims in verses 25 and 26. Let's look at them. These verses are so wonderful. Hey, ask yourself, do you really believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And thus, when Martha believes... Martha lives. This is the whole point of this book. John tells us, John's a good writer. He tells us why he writes. He gives us his purpose statement in John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, my, that by believing you may have life in his name. That's exactly what has just happened in our story. Martha is maybe the clearest illustration of the purpose of this book. Believe and live. That's the whole point. Again, that's, and that's what I'm desperate to communicate to you. I maybe get to talk with you one time in the next two or three years. I'm desperate to communicate to you this main thing because this is the main thing that John is desperate to communicate to you. Every moment of your life, 
In every single moment, every thought, every word, every deed is oriented towards your seeking life somewhere. Always. Every decision you make is ultimately about here's what you think is going to help you find the happiness or the life that you think. Every single moment. I desperately want to convince you and convince myself that life, that true life is found only in Christ. Are you seeking life and satisfaction and joy uh, in the only place that it can be found? He is the resurrection and the life. And notice the order. Why is it the resurrection then the life? It's, It's by necessity. It's by necessity of our sin and thus our death. Ephesians 2, 1, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We need resurrection because we are dead. So for there to be life, there has to be a transition from one to the other. So Jesus is here claiming to be both the commencement and the continuation of life. Resurrection is a return to life. Jesus is the author of that return. And he's the very life to which we are returned. He returns us and he returns us to himself. He raises us, and He unites us to Himself. And that's why it's so important that He doesn't say that He teaches the resurrection, or that He leads to the resurrection, or that He gives the resurrection. He says that He is the resurrection. That's a little weird. He, a person, is an event, a thing, a resurrection. How? How is that? I think this is kind of neat. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 4, one of the, setting the theme, the theme of, one of the themes of the book is life. We read that in him, in Christ, was life. He, as the God of life, is life. I really always struggled with the whole sin and judgment and death thing. I never really understood kind of what it was for a long time. Why is the wages of sin death? It's kind of like, hey, what's the big deal, God? Can't you just kind of get over it and, and forgive us? No, why is it? Why does sin result in death? Well, because of what sin is. Sin is our rejection of God. Sin is our rejection of the God who is life. And thus, it is our then disconnection from the God who is life. So sin, disconnected from life, equals dead. Which is logical. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so, since life is logically the only solution to death, your only hope was for capital L, life, to come in and connect himself to your sin, to take on that sin, and in taking on our sin, taking on our death, and dying our death. One of the most profound statements in Scripture is Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life. That's remarkable. You killed the author of life. But that's only because God willed the death of the author of life for us. Because of his great love for his people. Because of his great grace. Because something had to be done about our sin, which is death. And the only thing that could be done is that life himself come and die in our place. So that that disconnecting debt is gone. It's it's paid. So that we can then once again be reconnected to him who is our life. Jesus is not just getting us out of hell. He's not just forgiving our sins. He's not just getting us like, oh, now we get to go to heaven. He's returning us to himself, who is life. And so we thus live. And we live entirely based upon him and in him. We've got to better see that Christ literally is life. He doesn't just give you life. He is your life. 
And thus resurrection is not something reserved for after death, nor is eternal life. Both begin now. Both are present in Christ. Both can be, lay hold, be, be laid hold of by grace through faith now. In verse 25, he's talking about Lazarus and physical death. We physically die and yet still spiritually live. And then once again, physically live when Christ returns, as Martha mentioned in verse 24. But then in verse 26, look at it. Jesus is talking about two different things. Jesus is talking there about spiritual death, which results in eternal death after physical death. You've got to understand that there are three deaths, physical, spiritual, eternal. In 26, Jesus is saying that in him, now return to him, connected to him by faith, we will never spiritually or eternally die. That's the comfort. That's how we can sing, it is not death to die. That's why and how death is transformed for the Christian because of the Christ who is life. In him, we are literally in life. He's the vine. We are the branches. We are grafted and connected to life. And so we live. Do you believe this? Do you believe him? Do you believe into him? Do you know what it truly means to live? And are you alive? John 17, 3, this is eternal life. What is it? What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know that, that life is found in our relationships with one another. Right? True relationship is where we just find meaning and purpose in life. John's saying the same thing. Life is found in knowing and being known by God himself, in relationship with him. Life is relationship. We are resurrected in Christ to relationship with life itself. And thus, Christ quite literally is our life. And thus Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What are you seeking? Colossians 3.1, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is the result of a true experience of grace through faith. It is the very life of God. It is Christ himself in the soul of man. It's not just believe some stuff about Jesus so you can get on with your life and not worry about hell. It's literally Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christianity is Christ. It is the living Christ giving life to the soul by uniting that dead soul to him. That's what it's all about. Again, are you aware of, affected by, uh, just a sense of his love, thankful for his grace and his comfort, right? Do you, do you truly know him and find rest and hope uh, for him? You know, I, I read the Psalms every day. I, I don't get out of the Psalms. I'm going back to them again and again because so often my experience of life is so different from the Psalms. And I see David say things like, uh, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? Do you believe that there's joy and pleasure found in knowing him? Would anyone conclude from your life, your priorities, your time, your money, your Sundays, your weekdays, your thoughts, your concerns, your loves, and your hates, would anyone conclude 
that you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that the living Christ lives in you. I want you to know him. I want my daughters to know him. I want them to go to a good school, and I want them to play sports and play piano. All that stuff's great. I want them to know and love Jesus and to be known and loved by Jesus. And that's, that's the only thing that matters. And is that what matters to you? Paul says in Philippians 3, 2, that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Right? That starts with looking at his word and seeing Christ for who he is. It starts with looking, learning, praying that the Spirit would give us the eyes of faith to see the glory of Christ and live. And for that life to begin now as he lives in us and through us. Do you believe this? That's the question that Christ asks. And that's the eternally important question. There is no greater claim on your life. No one has ever made a greater claim than Christ makes here. He claims to be life, abundant life, eternal life, and he is that for us by living and dying and rising again in our place. He is the only solution to your imminent impending death problem. And there is infinite and eternal comfort to be found in him. I am, I believe, I live. My prayer for you is that you would find great life and much joy in Christ. If you would, bow with me and let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, my words have been many. Father, it is your word that matters. Father, I ask that you would show us Christ. I ask that now, with my work done, um, that your spirit would work through your word. Father, show us our sin. Make us aware of how still prone we are to seek and find satisfaction in life and other things. Father, show us how Christ is infinitely and eternally better than everything else and draw us to him. Father, for those who are in here who came today struggling and suffering and hurting and confused. Father, I pray that Christ would be their comfort. I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to his beauty and his glory, his kindness and his compassion. Father, may we find uh, life in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We ask and we pray all this only in his name. Amen.